Hey, welcome to the Living the Dream podcast. This is your host, Timmy Douglas, and the goal of this podcast is to create a community that inspires action, accountability, celebrates progress, and helps people make the right connections to take that next step towards their dreams and goals. If you're looking for any one-on-one coaching to pinpoint your purpose and start taking steps in that direction, make sure to contact me on my website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, or on social media. On that note, let's get into the show. All right, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today on the show, we have Eric Smolinski, who is a Marine veteran, options trader, real estate and angel investor, and a finance YouTuber. Eric, how you doing? Dude, I'm doing swell. It's great to be here. How are you? I'm fantastic, man. It's great to have you. We like to jump right in. So if you could start with telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you like to do for fun, that'd be great. For sure. So obviously my name is Eric. Um, I'm from New York originally, now live out here in San Diego, the Marine Corps. This was my first uh, duty station and I realized that I didn't have to do New York winters anymore. So I was like, yeah, that's actually kind of dope. Um, so I get to surf year round and there's a lot of good jujitsu and stuff around here, which actually dovetails beautifully in what I like to do for recreation. It's a lot of that stuff. I, I'm still very physical. Like I have always lived a very physical life and I got into martial arts early, I play rugby, still like the weight lift, like all that kind of stuff. So I do a lot of that on the physical side. And then interestingly enough, actually what I do for YouTube, I consider that partial recreation and it's because it is a skill set that is so foreign to me. I'm awful at it. Like I don't like making videos. I don't like being on camera. I don't like editing videos. Like I literally don't like any of it, but because there's that slight bit of discomfort and because it's a completely different skill set than I typically use, I'm enjoying that learning process a lot, like a lot, a lot. And especially, you know, coming from the from the Marine Corps, I'm taught, especially as a Marine officer, we're taught like success is not because of me. Success is because I have helped shaped conditions, but it's the team that made success. That doesn't work well on social media. If you message like that, you will go exactly nowhere. So even down to like the underpinnings of how to talk about this stuff, it has been a complete shift from my comfort zone into this world of complete discomfort. So uh, that's also a pretty big hobby of mine, at least as of right now. There we go. There we go. I love it. And it seems like you do a lot of stuff, option trading, real estate investing, angel investing. Tell us a bit more about what a typical day in the life looks like for you. Yeah, for sure. So I normally like wake up, I go do some sort of activity outside every single time, no matter what I, I don't wake up too early. I don't wake up too late anywhere between like five and seven, you know, depending on um, if I did like jujitsu the night before or something like that. And then I typically will check the markets markets open early out here on Pacific time. So they open at zero six thirty, and I'll take a look at that. And then I'll just kind of start getting ready for the day. So some days I will dedicate to being more active on the computer and trading. I still work within industry as a strategy consultant. So I spend some time with Deloitte and then I switch to industry. Now I've been with a company for a little bit now doing that. So I like to do a little bit of everything and I like to do stuff like this as well. I make an effort to share some thoughts, information or helpful resources via these kind of conversations or on social media, which I don't like social media. Don't know if I mentioned that, but I carve out time every day to share something on it. 
And I think that that's been um, really useful, at least. I'm, I say this all the time. I'm really not spectacular at anything. I'm really not. I'm a very, very average person. But the one thing I can always hang my hat on is I am dead fast consistent. As soon as I decide that I'm going to do something, it's going to get done. I know it's going to get done. I might not want to do it. Motivation comes and goes, but I'm going to do it. And that is like a big part of my daily process. So everything down from the way that I eat throughout the day, you know, the physical activity I have during the day, it's all built towards that same concept, which is just kind of dedication to the plan. And really most days fall within that. Mm, I love it. I love the discipline, the emphasis on discipline. Makes sense coming from the Marines. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, just real quick, tell us a little bit about what it's like um, looking at the market trading successfully. Because my brother is a day trader and he has taught me a lot about technical analysis. He's learned a lot about Mm -hmm. technical analysis. He's learned a lot about risk management. But there's this third piece and arguably the most important piece the mindset behind it. He keeps um, having to fight the self-sabotage side of things. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about kind of your journey with that and how you deal with it and all that good stuff. Yeah, for trading for me, it's it's actually very simple. And it's because I had, and like I was sharing before we started recording, I had a mentor that I met online. He's not like from my family or anything. He literally is a dude online. He was an army vet but I spent a lot of time talking to him about trading. And I was fortunate enough that I started trading very early. I started in 2007, I was still in high school then. And so I've been trading now for 15 years. I don't like to make it more than what it is. The whole point of trading for me was to create wealth so then I could spend time on whatever I want to. And I find a lot of day traders, it's kind of funny, it's a paradox because a lot of people start trading for a similar premise, right? Financial freedom of some sort, but then they get strapped in front of a screen for 10 hours a day doing nothing because they're strapped in front of a screen because that's how they make their money now. And to me, it's kind of, it's like the matrix, you know, because you thought you're getting away from that, but really you're just in it again. And so for me, I've, and because of that mentor, I've developed a few different ways that I like to trade. That's one of the reasons why I trade derivatives like options. And it's because it gives me a ton of flexibility. Like today I day traded. I had some time. I wanted to sit in front of the computer. I saw opportunities. So I sat down, I day traded for a few hours. I cut it off and then I went to the gym. Um, So for me, it's very process driven at this point. It's very simple. Uh, I say it's very simple, but it's like, you know, whenever you watch somebody who's very skillful at something, not to like try to talk myself up, I'm just familiar with it. So if you watch somebody who does pottery or something and they're making a pot, they make it look so easy. You know, they just do their little spinny thing. And then all of a sudden they have this really cool thing to show for it. Meanwhile, there's years of skill went into making that look easy. It's kind of the same thing. Um, the same sensation I get with trading. I am a very quantitative minded person. I spent a lot of time with statistics in my grad and undergrad. So I look at the trading world very much that way. So it makes my responsibility as a trader in my world much more simple because I don't have to sit there and wait for my very specific technical setup before I could place a trade. I just look at the market, see what I see, and then I go on my toolkit to find the right thing that fits the market as compared to waiting for the market to show the two things that I like. I don't do that. I look, I see what I see out there, and then I find the right thing to form fit. 
put the trade on and then I go play with my dog or go do something else for a little while until I feel like coming back and looking at the markets. Cause I am a junkie. I love this stuff. I love the markets. They're so fascinating to me. And it's such a really cool way to view the world, especially right now in the US, very political. Everything's very divisive. If you look at the news within like 14 seconds, you're depressed because everything's awful. And in the world of finance, it's all about dollars and cents, man. Like there's very little skew. The news is reported very similarly, but we don't have a lot of that same bias. We look at the lens of what impact does this have on the market, which is agnostic. It literally doesn't matter what you believe in. The market's going to go up or down because of news, and that's how it's reported as. So I use the markets as a way for wealth. Really, it was wealth creation for me because I didn't come from much, really anything. And it's morphed over time into definitely still wealth management, I would call it, but then also partial income. So if I want some money from the account, I'll you know pull the money out, something like that. But trading for me is very process driven. I view it as a business, very simple in terms of the way that I apply my mindset to it. I don't like to overcomplicate it, although I spend literally countless hours researching it. And that's more just because it fascinates me. I was looking at like my recent log, I kept a study log for a while. And I think at this point, I, I normally will tell people I've spent over 25,000 hours on it. And that's really on the low side. It's probably 6,000 hours above that, over 30,000 hours for sure. And it's just because I, I really like this stuff, man. Like probably at least, at least four hours every day, either trading, reading about it, um, something like that. And then when I was in college, especially my undergrad, I was huge amount of time, like literally 10 to 16 hours on top of my workload doing this stuff, like almost full, full, full 24 hour days, go to school, come back and then do this stuff until the day's over. Um, just got infatuated with it. So yeah, markets, fantastic, big fan, as you could tell, but I think that it's good to bucket it appropriately in your life. There we go. There we go. Now tell us a little bit more about your motivate. Actually, before we jump into motivation, what type of real estate and angel investments? What's your philosophy there? Great question. So for real estate, I look for good value opportunities that are lighter load on my end. I started far more humbly, meaning I bought my first house. I moved in. I viewed it as an investment property. But I lived there first and then I moved out. I actually just sold that house this year. I had it for seven or eight years, I think. Um, and I made 260,000 net profit on it. And it's just a, you know, a house that was essentially run in the background for me. And then after that, I started getting more into kind of developmental um, investing categories. So like land development, stuff like that, just because the time frame is a little different. Everything that I do with money, I view it as an opportunity cost against what I know I can do in the market because I know my compound annual growth rate CAGR from 2007 to 2021, the last full trading year is 22.8%. It's good. It's nothing crazy. It's very solid though. That outperforms the market almost by two times. There, I know traders that are way better than that. So I, I just add that in context because again, I'm a very average dude that's just spent a lot of time on this stuff. Um, so I view it a lot of investments against that context though, right? If I'm gonna take the money from the market and put it into something else, there needs to be a good reason for it. Either the performance of the return should be higher or it gives me other avenues in terms of how I wanna position myself for taxes. 
for taxes, man. So real estate actually is a, is a big part of my tax strategy. So at this point, I have real estate in the portfolio and my broader investing portfolio purposefully for that opportunity. And then also because there are still some areas, especially now with the housing market starting to correct, that it can offer tremendous growth opportunities. It was a little less, um, I don't know, it was a little less attractive for a while when housing prices started getting like real, real high. But with corrections like this, there's really, really good money potentially to be made. I'm very much less into the rental life. I much prefer to flip, move on. And it's just because for rental properties, you can get good financing, so it's not too expensive if you want to finance it. But for me, more often than not, to put up $300,000 and then get $1,000 a month, you know, if you amortize that out, it takes a hot minute before that makes sense if you buy the you know, house outright cash. So financing is the way to go when it makes sense. And then angel investing, really, that's just a pet project of mine. I got into that actually when I was in college. And... I started with hard money lending. So just people that didn't want to go to a bank for funding. I had some money from trading at the time. It wasn't much, but I mean, I would loan out five, $10,000, something like that. And wasn't essentially much. help with <laughs> I was, that. I said it wasn't much. That's more than most college kids have. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess that's true. But yeah, I mean, at that point, I, I had been trading for like five years, right? So I, I had not, plus I used to do a lot of sketchy shit in college to make some money. Um, I used to race cars. Like, yeah, I, I was doing all sorts of mad stuff. Um, but yeah, angel investing started really simply like that for me, but then it's become a pet project because I've acknowledged, I wouldn't say like I've relegated myself to it yet, but in general, I'm not the good idea fairy. Like I don't have a bunch of great business ideas swirling around my head for me to start a business. Otherwise I would do it. I genuinely would. But I just, I haven't found something like that yet. I've had good opportunities to start a business or take over a business, but it's been stuff that I don't want to deal with on a daily basis, man. Like it might be a good profitable company, but like, I don't care about selling candles, right? Like, yeah, I just, if it's not something I want to work with, I'm not going to spend the time on it. So angel investing has given me a really awesome opportunity to get active with business-minded people, mostly people with really good ideas that might have a little harder time operationalizing it and working with them in a way that I enjoy. So even if I'm working with somebody that's doing software as a service or something like that, and they have the know-how, but they don't have the money to create the minimal vile product to then try to pitch and get bigger funding or something like that, that's where I get to come in. I don't really care about software as a service. It's not my forte, but I do love helping somebody really in the embryonic stages of their idea, move that idea forward. That is very rewarding to me. So I consider angel investing very much in that bucket for me personally. I've not hit it big via angel investing. I make way better returns in the stock market, but angel investing is a really interesting world for me. And that's what keeps me there. There we go. Well, awesome. Let's jump into your motivation now. What really gets you up and keeps you going every day? It's a good question. I actually, during COVID, I went through kind of a, I call it a high class midlife crisis. And I, and I purposefully bucket it that way because I don't like framing it as woe is me. I was depressed. Everybody should feel bad for me because I was still just so fortunate about so many things. 
but I did have a pretty big loss of guidance. I had that exact thing. Like, what is the point of all this? Like, what am I doing? And there was a couple things that started orienting me really quickly on what matters to me. One is I really embrace challenging myself. I like making myself uncomfortable to see what I do, to see how I perform. And that is a big one of them. As you could probably tell by some of the things I've discussed so far, what I get involved with, it's not always like directly in my strength suits. And that's by design. And the second thing is I started studying stoicism a lot. And they talk a lot about this concept of like a, a societal contract, meaning, sure, we might have our family, which we owe our family a lot of our effort, but there's a bigger, there's a bigger payment, quote unquote, that we need to consider, which is how do we fit into like literally the human race into society around us? And that has been kind of the new shining light for me, because when I was on active duty in the Marine Corps, it was very easy. I had a very clearly defined mission, and I knew that that mission had a significant impact. Easy day. I had no problem being motivated because that mission was everything to me. I needed to create kind of a new mission to me, and this new one is really just a permutation of that. For the Marine Corps, it was obviously more defensively oriented for the country, but this new mission is more designed to tr literally trying to make as small of an impact as it may be, a positive impact on the world that I'm around. So prime time example, last week at the gym, some old lady came up to me and she was just like, uh, you know, my husband died. Can you help me move these two things in my house? I had a couple other things planned for that day, but I moved one of them so I could go help this old lady. Like I made the time to go help her. And to me, that is a big part of my purpose. It is to be around to help other people as other people have helped me. Mm, I love that. I love how simple it is too. Because me personally, like, I have that same type of vibe, but I often think really big about it. Yeah. And when I think really big about it, I miss the small things that I can be doing every day. It's, and you're, you're so right, though, because one of the one of the questions, actually, I think in the on your thing, which we'll get to a little bit later, is about exactly that, though, is like starting to acknowledge the small impacts you can have on people on the day to day, even holding a door for somebody, something you don't even think about that can still make an impact on somebody. I literally, when I was in college, I had a girl write me an email like a day later after I had just held the door open for her. She was saying how she was having a bad day and you know, she was bummed out and like just having somebody show that kindness to her, not even like male to female, just human being to human being seeing, yeah, let me hold this door for you. Like she sent me an email thanking me about that. I didn't even think about it. Yeah. But that email changed the way that I think about like small acts of just societal contribution. You never know, you know, what strikes a chord with who. So I, I agree with you though. That is a struggle to, you know, take the time to slow down and appreciate the impact that small things like that can have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome, man. I feel like that's a great segue into dreams and goals, vision for your life. We got an idea of how you operate in the micro. How do you think about the macro? What's your vision for your life and all the stuff that you do? This is one that I still struggle with. And it's actually because of really what I was just sharing that I've spent a lot of time trying to focus more on the day-to-day -day interims. And I think a lot of that also become comes from a place where the military gives you a humbling experience that 
a lot of the people you knew that are the same age or younger are no longer with us. They're not here. And it is a firm reminder that although a lot of us plan for the deep game, we're planning for when we're 60, hopefully we make it, right? But we're not guaranteed to make it. There's nothing that says we get there. So I think the way that I view my longer term dreams is to continue as the Stoics would say it, seeking virtue. And that is kind of what we've been talking about so far. This idea that I am looking to challenge myself each day to just literally force myself into growth patterns because stagnation makes me uncomfortable. Some people are comfortable with that and there's nothing wrong with that. Some people are really okay doing the same style job every day for 30 years. And I, my grandpa was one of those people on my mom's side. He worked at a grocery store for like 35 years. I couldn't even fathom doing that. So my mind is just wired slightly differently. And my goal is to continue pursuing things that satisfy me mentally, which is just kind of challenging myself. Um, and then the other thing is just finding ways to increase the overall contribution to society that I can have. That's been my latest effort. It's why I started doing like podcasts like this. Um, and I think I'm going to continue down that path until, you know, I, I feel the next shift on whatever I think my next purpose in life is. But for right now, that's the primary one. I'm in a phase where I found success. I'm very fortunate for that. And I want to share some of that information that people have shared with me for other people to find their success. And then who knows what's after that? I'm not too sure. There we go. What are the top one to two skills, one to two skills that are required for you to increase your overall contribution to society and continue seeking that virtue? There were one or two that you need to develop right now. I think the first one is to, like we were talking about before, it's actually to reprioritize the smaller acts. There's a lot of time, a lot of times I will do something and I don't really regard it as anything noteworthy. And it's still, you know, essentially inconsequential. But what that does mentally is it deprioritizes it for me. So on a day-to-day -day basis now, I'm always looking for just the smallest things I can do to help somebody have even a slightly better day or a more informed day or anything like that has been really useful. So I think that's the primary one is focusing on the ways that we can commonly make small impacts. And when you're talking about commonly making small impacts, the next question is about highest impact daily actions, which I feel like it's going to be along those same lines. Are you looking for specific actions every day or are you just going into it with that mindset of like, what small act can I do? It's the latter. It definitely is the latter because on any sort of day-to-day, -day, like I don't go out into the world and think like, what old lady can I help today? It's just, I, I never know. Like, again, two nights ago, I was at the gym for like my evening workout and there was a dude there that I've seen a few times. I talked to him and he and I, he and I started talking about working out for 15 minutes. He was relatively new to it. He was an older guy, but he was relatively new to it. We were just bullshitting about it. And I mean, that's what this book is right here. Becoming a supple leopard. It's I'm really into just physical and physicality. So there was an opportunity to share some of the time I've spent developing that skill set with somebody. So I just look at it as the, I am part of this society and 
it is incumbent on me to do what I can within my sphere to positively benefit others as small as it may be. There we go. There we go. And what character trait do you most need to develop right now to continue focusing on the small things, reprioritize the small acts, all that good stuff? The character trait is a really, really tricky one for me. I think... I think what really comes to mind there is slowing down. I'm very frequently like mentally on to the next. And I think that that sabotages some of these moments with people. So I, I think that's a probably the, the biggest one. And the other thing actually, now that I think about it is something I'm working more in the, in the finance world on the finance side of things, like with like the YouTube channel and stuff, I have this, habit, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I have a habit where I want to share as much high impact information as I can. But I recognize that sometimes that can be overwhelming for people. And it actually turns them off to the thing that I'm trying to turn them on to. And that I guess in that light, it's a bad thing. So maybe that's another character trait that I've been thinking a lot about is I don't know what to classify that trait as but I recognize it as something that I need to find a better way to navigate around. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think maybe like emotional intelligence, understanding. Um, That's probably, I, I honestly think the emotional intelligence is probably spot on because it's so true. I literally was talking with my wife yesterday about something else I'm working on. And she was just like, well, maybe you should, you know, cut off that last part because, you know, give people like the satisfaction of doing that, the stuff before that. And the way that my, my mind works is screw that. If you don't do this last part perpetually, none of this other stuff matters. Right. So like I'm wired in that kind of way, but she, she's right. Like, and I understand what she's saying, like let people gain a foothold so that they're encouraged to continue beyond that. And it's a really good point. And I think you actually hit the nail on the head. It probably is like a good level of emotional intelligence that I need to develop. Gotcha. Yeah. It sounds like you come at people with a lot of intensity when delivering the high impact. impact. I've heard, I've heard this before. So yeah, that's a fair. And I mean, another thing that I'm, I would consider it notorious for is I'm just, I'm very direct. I'm not worried necessarily. I don't do anything to like purposely hurt someone's feelings. I wouldn't want to do that. But like, I also think it's incumbent. And again, the Stoics would argue this, that it's incumbent on us as the individuals to manage our own feelings. Not so much. I have to manage somebody else's feelings for them. That's that they should manage their feelings. But I also understand that that obviously is not very emotionally intelligent and I probably need to need to work on that a bit more. I'm, I'm always just like, let's cut off the fluff. Let's get straight to the point here. If something's good, it's good. If it's bad, it's bad. And we'll figure out how to turn bad to good. But yeah, I, it's, it's definitely a weak suit of mine that I need to consider a little bit more. Yeah. Have you ever read how to win friends and influence people? I have. And it's actually hilarious. You say that because <laughs> Someone that I was in a, like a discussion with essentially was just like, you're saying things that are accurate, but you're saying them like an asshole. You need to read this book. <laughs> and I was like, fair cop. And it's actually really like, I, a lot of that book I really enjoy because I think it very delicately dances the line because I'm not in a manipulation. I don't want to plant small seeds to get you to see the world the way that I see it. I like to share thoughts 
and then let people come to their own conclusions. But like most things in life, there is a middle ground, right? And I think me spending more time understanding how I verbalize things and how that works for most people, because again, in the military, it's completely different. In the military, if I listen to a brief and it sucks, I will literally say, that brief sucked. This is what's wrong with it. This is what we need to work on. And we all are of the same understanding that we're coming from this at a point of like pursuing excellence. And there's no time for, let me coddle your feelings if we're really trying to focus on this high level execution. That being said, there still is a middle ground because people and that book actually by Carnegie will highlight that people also have like subconscious defense mechanisms that they may not willingly put up. But if you say stuff in such a way that it triggers those mechanisms, guess what? You know, your path just got that much harder. So it's I'm actually really glad you bring that book up because it's been a, an important read for the way that I approach a lot of things. I like to think I've become a lot softer in how I come across, which might be terrifying to you to hear. But. <laughs> no, I actually, I love the direct communication. I am of your um, same opinion of like, I'd rather have somebody mm -hmm. just tell it to me, tell it to me straight so we can get to the problem and fix it. But I have learned that a lot of people don't like to be treated that way. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, it's a bummer because I feel like it just highlights that people are used to other people attacking them mm -hmm. because if I'm sharing uncomfortable feedback with somebody, it's uncomfortable for both of us. Like, I don't like saying mean or, you know, not positive stuff to people, but it typically comes from a place of agape love. It's like the, like truly trying, just as you're sharing agape love with me saying like, Hey, maybe your emotional intelligence needs some work. Like, <laughs> I, I think that that's like a really fair thing. You know what I mean? To, for, for you to say, and, and it's well received. So I feel like, you know, people, we've just become so uh, conflict based in our society where we're just trying to, you know, dig at someone or get at someone that we default to, oh, they're saying this to be mean as compared to, eh, you know, maybe they're trying to help me. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. I love that. Man, that was a good, uh, I like, that was like a communication masterclass in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Well, if there were one or two people that you could meet right now, and this could be a specific person or a type of person, and they'd really help you take the next step towards increasing the overall contribution to society that you can have, who would this person be and how could they help you? Uh, it would be two people. One of them would be a living person. It would be Elon Musk. Yeah. And although he does not come from the same background I do, his brain obviously works magnificently at thinking big, right? He's talking about like literally trying to get mankind to Mars and it's for a similar purpose because whether it's right or wrong, like he believes that that is for the betterment of the human race and society. So I really respect that. And I would love to learn about that, that way to think like if you getting humanity to Mars seems so big to me, that I would have a hard time even like conceptualizing it, let alone conceptualizing it, bringing it to the masses to get their buy-in and then actioning on it. Like that's very impressive to me. And I think the second person that I really would enjoy discussing would be Abraham Lincoln. And it's because he's a fascinating figure to me. I've read a few books on him. And I mean, he suffered from like crippling depression. Meanwhile, he navigated one of the most awful times in our 
the U.S. history, I should say, not not like world history, but U.S. history, and especially when you think about um, the Civil War and just everything else that was going on around then, he, I mean, he had to navigate all of that. So I think uh, I've learned a lot about the way that he deals with people, and I would like to learn more about that from him. I did not know that he suffered from crippling depression. Awful. Yeah. Any 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 memoirs you read about him. Um, there's a really fantastic audiobook by called Killing Lincoln. There's it's a series. It's called there's a bunch of different like killing blank, killing Hitler, killing the Indians. Like it's all by I think Bill O'Reilly. But Killing Lincoln was one of the books I, I listened to about it. And then also I read a few other memoirs about him. But yeah, he had awful depression. Like there was days where he wouldn't eat. He wouldn't want to wake up, like just crippling depression. That is wild to think about. Insane. Insane. Dang. And did that, was depression like, I don't think it was a diagnosis back then, was it? Yeah, I, I, I think they understood what it was, like just the general state of being unwell. And they knew like most of the, the, at least from my understanding, like most of the cures for it actually involved like small doses of cocaine and stuff like that, that obviously will release a tremendous amount of dopamine. But I think for, for them, they understood at least the, the general tenets of it. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, awesome. Now we're going to jump into our thriving three. And the first question is what's your favorite book, movie, or podcast? Pick one. Um, favorite podcast is the Huberman lab for sure. Gotcha. What is that podcast about? So Huberman lab is essentially about as you, well, I actually, you, you may not be familiar with it, but, um, Huberman lab, he's a, uh, neurobiologist essentially. So he shares just a lot about humans and the way we think the way we do things. And there's a lot of stuff that I do now as a result of that podcast. Like for example, as soon as I wake up in the morning, I make sure that I get at least 10 minutes of bright light viewing. So typically I'll go outside and I couple that with a couple other quote unquote, he doesn't like the term, but I like it biohacking essentially ways to just be more optimized human beings. So I'll go outside into the sunlight and I'll take my shirt off and I take my shirt off because I have a lot of skin and that absorbs the sunlight, turning it into vitamin D, which most people now, because we're so indoors are vitamin D deficient. So there's, I'm really obsessed with optimization. I love efficiency. I just, I can't think of many other ways as you could probably tell again from my communication style. It's why I'm bred to communicate like that. It's efficient. If we're in a firefight in the military, I don't have time to give you the, the good feedback, bad feedback, good feedback. You know, I can't do the whole sandwich feedback thing. Like yeah. there's, there's no time for that. So I'm very, um, yeah, efficient focused. So his podcast has changed a lot about how I go about my day-to-day -day life based and predicated on that. Mm. I love it. And what is one way you like to take care of yourself? Physical, got to get physical. If I am not physical for li literally every day, if I don't do something physical, it has negative impacts. So I prioritize that even if I'm injured, I've had plenty of injuries before. Um, and I always find something to do, um, to be physical. It's gotta happen. There we go. And what is one action step you can take right now or continue to take if you're already doing it to meet Elon Musk? Um, 
I actually don't really intend to ever meet him in person. I don't think that I have to in order to extract the information for people like that that I look up to. What I do is just like I was telling you with Lincoln, um, I'm fortunate enough that Elon is still alive. So I just listen to him when he speaks. So it would be cool to meet him someday, but he's a busy dude and it really doesn't matter to me. I'm not like a fanboy like that. Like if I'm in front of Elon Musk, I, oh my God, like I don't really care. Like he's another dude. He's doing cool stuff, but I can learn a lot of that stuff by being a better practicer of our history and also paying attention like when people like that speak. There we go. I like that. And I like that specifically because when I first started diving into like self-improvement and success literature, one of the first things that I think it was Darren Hardy said in the compound effect, maybe he was talking about um, how you can have many mentors because so many people yes. have left their words behind for you so that you could become a better person. You could Im impact and affect more change. So I like that you said that. Spot on. Cool, man. Well, now we're going to jump into our final series of questions. And they can get a little personal. You don't seem like somebody to shy away from that. But I always give the disclaimer. You guess. can opt not to answer if you want to. What is one limiting belief that continues to pop up in your life, if any? Thinking too small. Mm. It's got to be. Um, I don't know like what belief I would tie that to. But it's it's thinking too small. And I think a lot of it is because of... Again, like my upbringing, I grew up with a single mom. I had an alcoholic dad that died when I was like 28. He died a few years ago. Um, I had a very supportive and loving family. I'm always very clear to, to note that I didn't have a bad family whatsoever. I, I actually am so fortunate for my family upbringing. But anyways, that aside, we didn't grow up with money. And like I walked through a metal detector every day to go to junior high school all the way up through high school. Uh, it was just the world that I grew up in. And I think part of that has negatively impacted my own growth trajectory. And it I noticed it with a lot of small things. Like I used to tell myself, like, not good at math, so I'm just not good at math. And shocker, when I would tell myself I'm not good at math, I struggled with math. So I think it's just those small self self-imposed handicaps. And at one point I literally just told myself, I didn't say like, I'm good at math cause I wasn't, but I just stopped allowing myself the excuse of I'm not good at math. I just stopped saying it. And shocker, I, if you noticed before I said that I did stats in my undergrad and grad degree, and it's because I'm not bad at math. I literally just needed to spend more time on it. And now I'm completely fine at math. So I feel like the the main limiting belief is just probably this long baking, just amorphous concept that started from when I was very young that felt like I wasn't supposed to like get to any sort of certain point. And I think that that's just kind of materialized over time. I'm very fortunate now that I kind of acknowledge some of it and obviously I'm actively fighting against it, but I do still think that it gets in the way again, like using the Elon example, the fact that he's thinking about taking humanity to Mars is mind boggling to me. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around those kind of concepts. So it still exists. I'm working on it, but yeah, I think that's the thing that comes to mind there. Gotcha. Which I actually thinks it answers your second question there. It does. Where does it come from? Yeah. I, childhood. I think so. 
not not to blame childhood for it, but I think that's where it started. And yeah, it's something I got to work on. There we go. And what actions do you feel like reinforce it? And by reinforce it, I mean, like you think too small or you think you're not supposed to get to a certain point and then you act as a result of that belief, thought, yeah. feeling. Yeah, I, I think it's, I grew up with a very effective coping mechanism where I didn't, I didn't allow myself to aspire to a whole lot because then it, and this is also underpinned in stoicism where you want to manage your expectations. And I think I took that to an extreme though. So I think by becoming, I guess you could call it like overly adapted to managing my expectations, I think it naturally lowered my ceiling for a while in terms of what I thought I could or should do. I see. So from a pretty young age, you've been setting your expectations to the point where you are not aspiring to a whole lot. Yeah, I think that's fair. And you said it was to cope, but it was to cope with what was going on in your childhood, family life, school life. What part I, were you coping with? Yeah, I, I think it was to cope with just the reality of where I was at. Like my my mom, um, if if she didn't work her two jobs and uh, each day, there was a chance that we were going to miss a bill that cycle or something like that. So I just grew up in a very like fiscally constrained environment. And I think I just immediately started managing all of my life expectations off of that worldview at that point in time. And I think that's really where it comes from because over time for me, finances, I don't really aspire still to a lot of material things. I do like some material things. Like I have a thousand horsepower Corvette, big fan of that. Um, like there are material things that I really enjoy that it took me a while to like really unlock that part of my mind and say like, no nah, man, like this is actually possible. So I think that financially constrained environment when I was growing up led to a lot of adaptations in, term, in terms of managing my expectations. And then I think that that just set kind of a, a moderation on the way that my brain worked in terms of big things, big ideas that made them, I wouldn't say impossible for me in my mind, but I just made it as, yeah, you know, I could do without that. I'm fine with this lesser version of that. Mm, I see. I see. And so do you have actions today that you're doing, whether it be weekly, monthly, annually? that come as a result of that, that maybe you're not seeing, or maybe you don't criticize because of that? Um, I think less and less so now at this point, because I've spent a lot of time thinking about these things and I've changed the way I do a lot of stuff. So I suppose at this point, it's more of a continuation plan to um, work on the unconscious subrooting that's occurred, you know, over, I'm 31 now. So over essentially my lifetime, I think that's really the, the main perpetuation of it, but I'm pretty aware of it at this point. I'm very, very active against just about any self-limiting thoughts. Like if you told me humans can't fly, I would say at least as of right now, they can't like, I don't even allow stuff like that in my brain because yes, right now, objectively, a human being unassisted cannot fly. Does that mean that I need to acknowledge or accept that as a perpetual fact? No, who knows who, who literally who knows human beings have evolved very strange over a long time. If there was an evolutionary need in 5 million downs, million years down the road, could a human being fly? Maybe. 
Is it likely? Very unlikely. My point being, though, is I don't allow low probability events to become zero probability events in my mind. And I think just slowly adapting that thought process has uncapped that natural um, ceiling that I've placed on myself for a long time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Do you think the pace at which that thought process continues to develop and the unconscious continues to be like rooted out? Do you think that pace comes from a result of that belief or do you feel like the pace is kind of a, I can't even say a natural pace. Cause what is a natural pace? You know what I mean? Like it could take right. one day for somebody, it could take 15 years for somebody. So I guess for you personally, do you think that pace comes from that limiting belief or do you think that pace is something that has come as a result of you working through that? And now you're clear of the limiting belief. It's your natural pace. I think it's the latter. I, I think that there are probably still pockets of just that limiting belief cycle, but I typically can see them and call them out for what they are. So they ultimately don't limit pretty much anything that I'm doing, at least that I can conceive of consciously. There might be subconscious, you know, um, markers of it still, but I don't feel like it's very prevalent. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, awesome. Um, trying to decide if I want to ask this next question. I'm, I'm going to ask it. I'm going to ask it. If you were to change that limiting belief of like thinking too small or like not, you are not supposed to get to a certain point. If you were to change that into an abundant phrase that spoke to your heart, what would that phrase be? I think the phrase would be, it's okay to think big. There we go. I, and the reason why I bring that up is I, and even from the military, I grew up with like a very no failure mindset to not allow failure. It's generally like a pretty big deal, especially in the military to fail at something very big deal. So I think that no fail world lends to again, and bolsters that expectation management in order to not fail. I set expectations that still might be challenging, but I know for sure if I work real hard at them, I could probably hit it. Whereas for me, embracing this idea of thinking big is embracing the potential for failure and saying, I am okay, potentially failing at something. The thought process being, I likely would land further than I would have with a lower target than before. So I think it's okay to think big. There we go. Do you think that belief of it being okay to think big is at all tied to the, your future development of emotional intelligence? Mm, that's a good question. I, I probably would think that there are two separate systems, at least the way that my brain operates. Because for me, emotional intelligence typically is external in nature. It's about the way that I interact and interface with other people. Whereas thinking of ideas is typically pretty internal for me. So at face value, I would surmise that they're decoupled, not necessarily discrete from one another, but I imagine that the overlap is probably not super significant, but I wouldn't consider them. Yeah. Completely separate. Gotcha. Yeah. I think I was asking that because I think thinking big like when you think of doing anything big it always gets to a point where you cannot do it alone 
And Hmm. then I feel like at that point, our relationship to others comes into play. And so if your emotional intelligence is capped at a certain level, and maybe you have, you're like, I can't see myself relating to a thousand people in a way that would inspire them towards a certain action, because I don't have that level of emotional intelligence or leadership or whatever it may be. um, It would be hard to think past working or getting a thousand people to work towards something. Whereas like Elon Musk is thinking, okay, he has a lot of people working for him at Tesla, right? And he has a lot of people that are going to work for him to get humanity to Mars. And I feel like their relation to people and thinking big, like you have to be able to relate to people to think big because nothing big happens without people, I think is what I was trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really accurate. Elon Musk is actually a fascinating example to me. And I think that there is a balance, right, between emotional intelligence and still leading and aligning people. Like I, I've led very large groups of people. My my last job um, in the Marine Corps, I essentially ran uh, 900 people. So like I'm, I'm very, I'm comfortable with the concept of leadership because realistically leadership to some degree, you can argue good leadership from bad leadership, but realistically leadership is just moving people to accomplish something. And for me, I can remove a lot of that emotional intelligence aspect, not that I want to, but just for a discussion's sake, I could limit the amount of impact that that has by placing a goal that we all inherently align to. Because if you ask most people how emotionally intelligent is Elon Musk, you're going to get crickets because it's not very like I consider myself more emotionally intelligent than him. He's brutal. Um, But he, to your point, he can clearly operationalize huge things. And in my opinion, what he's doing is he's picking goals that are extremely impactful that people are so committed to hitting regardless of the way that he is. And to me, that's actually like the most powerful portion of leadership. Not so much, again, I want to be very clear. I don't believe in treating people poorly whatsoever, but I think if you treat people fairly and you more importantly put a very important goal that they inherently believe, even if you're not in the picture in front of them, but you are willing to lead them in that direction, you get a far greater output than these other companies that are essentially just trying to coax people by quote unquote, making them like them as their employer, as their boss. And that never really works that well. It's, I think, very superficial and it runs out. You know what, you know, gets people to do a good job, pay them more, right? Treat them fairly. And all of a sudden the bigger picture starts to come into play. And I think that they can focus on those things. Again, it's important to treat people nicely though. Like there's no reason to be an asshole. Yeah. That's where the fair part comes in, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. I, I would also, I think there's an argument to be made that thinking or picking a goal that motivates everybody is emotionally intelligent. Like Completely. I agree with you wholeheartedly. That resonates with their emotions. So. Yeah. I, I, and I actually, that's a really nice way to kind of close the circle on that. Cause I think that's completely true. If you pick a goal that doesn't resonate with people, I mean, even to use an awful example, but it's a really pertinent one is if you look at the way that Hitler was able to literally mobilize an entire country that if you had asked any single one of them at any point in time, let's just pretend that there wasn't that grooming period. And at one point he told a potential supporter, I want to murder millions of people because they don't look like me or whatever, you know, we, we want to boil down his philosophy to. They probably would have looked at him like he's insane and not gone along with it. But 
he effectively brought them along on a journey that led them from a place where that probably would have been their initial response to the people who are actually doing it. So I think that I've learned a lot about just the way that people operate in large groups, which is unfortunate. And again, I don't use that example lightly because it's awful, but it is a very pertinent example to discuss for people because most of those people who are complicit in that probably wouldn't have ever seen themselves in that kind of scenario otherwise. So I think there's something we can draw from that, but to the good side, to thinking about how can we get more people interested in betterment of humanity and helping one another and being less conflict-based. That's one of my biggest goals is I do my best to talk to all sorts of people. A lot of them I don't agree with, but I can still shake their hand, give them a hug, wish them the best, and we can move on. I think that, you know, as a society, we've just become very conflict-based, which is a bummer, but I think there's a way out of it. I think it's just human beings starting to see one another for human beings. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. And we got one last question for you. So I want to frame this next question. Alex Hormozzi said that the difference between manipulation and help is intent. I think his point mm -hmm. here is that you're influencing people in both situations, but manipulation is about getting somebody to do something you want them to do, while help is about seeking to understand what somebody wants and then helping them get there. And this question is more about helping, not the manipulation part. So there's a common saying that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. I actually found out from Dr. Alan Leica, who was a guest on the show, that you can make a horse drink. You just have to salt its oats. Now. I want you to think of a person with a really fixed mindset, not willing to accept help, not willing to accept change, but they're discontent with their life. They're not liking where they're at. How can we, you and I, create an environment to salt their oats and help them change their life? It's a fascinating question. I think for stuff like that, it always comes down to the to the individual and I'm a big believer in Stephen Covey, the seven habits of highly successful people begin with the end in mind. So I think for people like that, I think the proverbial salt for their oats, the salt comes from understanding like, again, like this conversation, like what is somebody after in their life? And then I think you can use that information to start adding the correct avenues for people, again, to add that proverbial salt. Because to your point, and I agree with the first part of that, that statement, that if you just start trying to get people to do what you want them to do because you want them to do it, then you might be a great manipulator. Again, that previous example that I was giving you. So I, I really believe in begin with the end in mind. So for that friend that we're discussing, the very first thing I would need to do is to understand not so much why they are the way they are now, that is almost irrelevant at this point in the conversation, it would be more about what is their ultimate goal in life? Because I do think that although this story that was shared with you about salting the oats to get a horse to drink water, something that you can't circumnavigate is some animals, when they get old, they refuse to eat. So they're not going to eat the salt on the oats. They're not going to drink water because they lost the will to live and they're ready to die. Yeah. And there, there is no circumnavigating that. So I think the main thing is understanding somebody's goals and then starting to prop those up as something worth living for, something worth pursuing, and then working backwards from there. There we go. I love it. I appreciate the answer. It's a fun question. I really like that question. Of course. Well, Eric, that's all we got for you, man. Is there anything <laughs> else that you want to chat about before we sign off? 
No, absolute pleasure. I really enjoy talking about this kind of stuff, especially because a lot of what I do is we kind of discussed is very quantitative in nature, right? I'm, I'm primarily an investor. So my world is based on numbers and numbers don't lie, but I really enjoy tapping into this alternate side of things because I spent a lot of time learning this stuff again, like working to become a Marine officer and it's a less practice skill set. So it's a really fun dialogue. I'm glad that you're doing conversations like this. It's great, not even for the people that listen, but for the participants, right? Like this is a, a really useful dialogue for me to work on, again, this other part of my brain that's less used. There we go. Well, awesome. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. And hey, Pleasure. Of course. And if you guys are listening to this and you loved what Eric had to say, make sure to hit him up. Make sure to follow the YouTube channel. All the ways to contact him will be down in the show notes. Thank you guys for watching. We will see you on the next one. And on that note, we're out. Guys, thanks for listening. Make sure to reach out to our guests and help them accomplish their dreams and goals if you resonated with them. If you're looking for any intentional masterminds or one-on-one -on -one coaching to accomplish your dreams and goals, make sure to check out the website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, and contact me either there or on social media. That's all I got. Have a blessed day.